There may come a day when you'll find yourself crawling along an interminable interstate, boxed in by drivers whose hurry to get to their destination is the very reason traffic merely inches forward. But then you'll crest a hill or round a bend, and instead of the procession of enameled vehicles glinting in the harshness of the noonday sun, you'll find a ribbon of unbroken gray asphalt stretching like a conveyor belt to the horizon. The congestion has vanished, but how, miles from an exit, with the road hemmed in by vast swaths of trackless wilderness, it is not your imagination. Your fellow travelers have exited the freeway. That point always before you, that dark smudge that seems so impossibly far up ahead where the road meets the sky, it is no natural phenomenon, not the result of light being blocked by the stuff of the horizon. It is a physical point of departure, a wayside of sorts for the travel-weary. And if, someday, in the doldrums of a monotonous journey, you notice a sudden lightening of the traffic, you might want to pause and ponder. Is it the others who have disappeared into the horizon, or is it you? Stand. Story by Catherine Emily. The stillness of the valley made Leo think he was staring out at a picture postcard, a snapshot caught in time, not a living landscape. The steam coming off his coffee cup rose as a solid vertical plume rocketing straight up into the cloudless sky. Nothing stirred, nothing rustled, nothing buzzed. No peevish whistle of the wind assaulting the sun-scorched desert scrub. No laconic droning of cicadas off in the hills. The pamphlet of the resort had promised privacy, and they had not lied. And at the time, Leo had thought he wanted the kind of seclusion advertised in the pages of the glossy brochure. But now he felt himself stagnating, as if there were some vampiric force in the hot, heavy desert air that required effort to breathe in. He thought only of flying from here, of going to some coffee shop where a symphonic cacophony of noises, clinking spoons and murmured confidences and scraping chairs, would resound over the baritone droning of an overtaxed air conditioning unit. But as soon as he got there, he would be distracted by people jockeying and jostling each other in their bid to win the feverish marathon of urban living and disgust at the quickness with which the pretense of polite society fell away would cause him to flee again to some other secluded spot just like this one. Some might have called it wanderlust, this perpetual restlessness of his, but he had no desire to travel any place in particular, only to get away, his alacrity growing with each successive stopover. One place was as equally loathsome as the next. Leo fought the urge to flee by rising every few minutes, to reheat his coffee, to relieve himself, to fetch some new item from inside the hotel suite. It was all pretense. He was really avoiding the notebook that lay open on the table, avoiding the angry blank void of the page on which he was supposed to be writing. Leo thought of the days of his youth, when the words had poured free and easy as a faucet running from his soul. Days when he'd awoken early, 
before the pale gray light of dawn came creeping through the window blinds, before the buzzing of his alarm shattered the peace and still of his room. He'd gathered up loose sheets that lay scattered around the bed, scrawled with erratic lines written in the frenzy of a midnight fever dream, jotted down blindly in the dark before the words faded from memory. And he'd brought them into the recording studio, where the guys in the band took one quick peruse and sent them flying across the room with a dismissive twist of the wrist. What is this, high school composition? Come on, man, we're a rock band, they scoffed. They took his lyrics, his fanciful musings and odes to truth and vivisected them. His lyrics appeared as horrible chimerical monsters, phrases chopped up and stuck on to others at random, like some grotesque experiment by Dr. Moreau. And Leo became equally unrecognizable. Leonard Glazer, with the puppy dog curls and the soulful eyes, became Leo, with the jet black mane and the eyes shuttered by an alcoholic glaze. Even as the band reached its zenith, Leo, the acknowledged spark to its creative flame, retreated into himself. He was like a man in a locked room, screaming at the top of his lungs for someone to come and let him out. But there was no one to hear, least of all those who knew him best. He learned to resign himself to a life of solitude, to the knowledge that nothing of what was in his soul, his thoughts, his moods, his talents, was valued by those who called him genius. Was that existence? It wasn't he who was known, he who was loved by the crowd, but a blank figure upon whom others projected their own desires. Leo stopped writing. The band regurgitated old material, and no one noticed. Now, the blankness of the page, which had once seemed pregnant with possibility, paralyzed him. It was a vast plain of nothingness, an expanse of terrifying whiteness. He recalled, dimly, some grade school lesson about white light, how it was a perfect blend of all the colors the eye could perceive, that there were no boundaries in the color spectrum, but the color one saw was a matter of relativity to the surrounding environment. There was a metaphor in there somewhere for equality, for unity. He didn't care to tease it out. When men spoke of unity, he found they too often meant negation. There was some all-leveling quality that man desired and found in crowds, as if the shared identity of a thousand people all with similar tastes and styles of dress was not a common bond wherein one could find another and grow in friendship, but a conspiracy through which the similarity of one to another helped erase the singular identity of all. And Leo before them in a literal spotlight, elevated on the stage, a dais of sorts, he strummed his guitar, let loose a guttural half-scream of rock-and-roll ecstasy, and they cheered and threw their bodies about with abandon. Didn't that make him a kind of god? But the gods are not gods without worshippers, and his had forsaken him. Leo had never really understood it. There had been the public belt with alcoholism, the recovery program, and the bitter tabloid divorce, and the spiraling back into addiction that had finally spelled the end for the band. But the others had all been through a similar carousel of misery, and the public had forgiven them. Just not Leo. He suspected that, deep in the shadowed wells of their subconscious, they instinctually resented him because he, unlike the other members of the band, had attempted to pull off a grand illusion and failed. His identity was a pretense that could not be sustained.
The fans who lived vicariously through his onstage antics could not afford to consider the implications this had for their own lives. Leo was more authentically bohemian now than he'd ever been when the band charted. Then there had been the mansions, the parties, the designer clothes carefully tailored to look worn and faded. Now he lived out of a suitcase in the sky-blue Thunderbird he'd bought years ago. He never stayed in one place for long. A few weeks, maybe a month, maybe a month and a half, in a secluded hotel or apartment, and then he was off to the next place. He had plenty of money and no one to tie him down. That had been the pattern of his middle age, at least until he'd come to Ely, Nevada. He'd rented a room in an old-style boarding house, as much of a holdover of the last century as the town itself. It was there, in the laundry room in the basement, where he'd met Mina late one night. In the days when the band had been at its height, she was exactly the kind of girl he would have pursued. Beautiful, confident, and apparently impervious to the judgment of the world, and to his fame and all that it could buy. It would have pleased him to wear down her defenses, to break her down bit by bit so that she became accustomed to jewels and fine clothes and five-star restaurants, until she needed him, not for he himself, but as a lifeline to the new identity he created for her, until she felt alive only when being chased through a store by the voyeuristic vultures in the press. And then he'd dump her and move on to the next one. Cruel? Perhaps in the short term. But in the long run, Leo did them all a favor. The pain of having one's ideals eroded bit by excruciating bit was worse than the quick, dirty disillusioning he enacted. Besides, in the end, none of them were truly hurt. They were flattered by his attentions and accepted his gifts and attentions eagerly, after just the right amount of protest. You can't compromise something you never really believed in. But Mina was different. He walked in on her in the laundry room late one night. Her back was to the door. She was folding clothing and humming under her breath. Know we ourselves in the daytime when we set the world aflame, or know we ourselves in the nighttime when dark can't hide the shame. She sang in a breathy voice that vacillated between keys. She paused, then sang the same lines again. Her voice was not what one would call technically gifted, but there was something to her intonation that was captivating. These were not just random words that had popped into her head, like the static of an idle mind, but something to which she was attached. It was as if, as she sang, she synthesized their meaning. Leo was across the room before he'd really considered what he was doing. You like that song? he asked, coming up close behind her. Not particularly. Just that lyric. I wish the rest of the song lived up to it. Leo took a step back, trembling. When she turned and recognized him, she flushed with the embarrassment of the accidental slight. But the line of her jaw was firm. She did not apologize. He felt a faint fluttering of hope in his gut. Perhaps here, at long last, was one who saw the higher things in life, not just as the stuff of idle moments spent dreaming, but as something to be pursued in the hopes they can one day be brought into being. But she acquiesced easily enough when he asked her to dinner. She was at times over-eager, boisterous even in her conversation, but at others hesitant and shy. Her eyes, though they sparked with curiosity, were never on him for more than a second. Most of the time her gaze was fixed on some point off in the distance before her. Her eyes were unfocused, 
and he knew that she was concentrated not on the things around her, but on giving voice to the ideas in her mind. When she spoke of ideas, she forgot her conscientiousness of her own self. She stopped covering her mouth as she laughed, and her hands moved from where they had lain meticulously folded on the table in front of her, and Leo began to believe she just might be genuine. At the end of the evening, as a final test, he'd intended to make some insinuating remark of romantic overture, but in the end, he simply took her hand and kissed it. The ridge of one soft finger was caught between his lips. He held it there just a fraction of a second too long, so it was no longer a chivalrous goodbye, but a declaration of sentiment. He caught the crimson flush in her cheeks before her gaze dropped to the ground. In that moment, he knew that she was as he, uncomfortable and uncertain of herself in contrast to the world around. They met often after that, for late-night meals and weekend coffees. He liked most to catch her on her break at the newspaper where she ran the opinion desk and steal her away for himself, if only for half an hour. She never asked about his past, and he was unsure how much she knew, for she was more than a few years younger than he. And she didn't talk much of hers, but that didn't seem to matter, for they talked often of philosophy, and he came to know the cast of her mind, which seemed a much more personal detail than the town in which she'd grown up. It was the evening they talked of censorship that was the reason he was now sitting in agony upon this hotel balcony. It had not begun as a serious conversation, but it had quickly run that way. Mina had swept in late to dinner, breathless and apologetic for leaving him sitting conspicuously alone in a restaurant full of laughing couples. He forgave her, of course. What else could he do when she turned her round brown eyes towards him? He could tell something was wrong when she ordered a glass of wine. Whatever else of his past she was in ignorance of, she knew at least of his alcoholism and refrained from drinking in his presence. But not only was she drinking that night, her fingers were clenched tautly about the stem of the wine glass. Rough day, he asked. She sighed and it was as if a dam burst inside her. I am very tired of being told I can't print a particular piece of writing because it's not reflective of the views of our readership, as if popularity were the only value by which a newspaper should be driven. And then, how do we know whether a certain thing will be popular if we never print it? Surely it's insulting to presume that our audience won't value a particular piece of writing simply because it diverges a little from what they normally read? What are we to do? Keep regurgitating the same opinion over and over again, but with different phrasing? Isn't that insulting? I'd like to think more of mankind than that, that the individual's a rational and honest actor and approaches new ideas with an open and scrutinizing mind. She paused to play with the condensation that had collected on her glass. Then she turned her gaze to him. I know I'm an idealist and that sets me apart, but am I really that far off base? Leo sat simply staring at her wanting desperately to offer some words of comfort, but he did not know how. He had no answer to give her. Instead, he poured his heart out to her, his past and the heartbreak of hearing from his bandmates and the countless record executive that their fame was the product of a very particular sound. That was what the audience wanted, and that was what they were owed so long as they had money in their pockets. Mina sat and listened, her brow furrowed with concern. Her hands worked their way free of the stem of the wine glass and into his. Leo, she asked when he'd finished speaking, her voice gentle. 
Isn't it enough that those lyrics exist, that you wrote them? Even if they're never played, never appreciated, you created them with your talent and your vision. No one can take that away from you. Doesn't that count for something? She was right, and he wanted to show her that he recognized this. And so he called up the band's old agent and asked him to book a one-night stand. It didn't matter where. Some dingy dive bar with an open mic where youth and talent went to prostitute themselves for the longest of long shots at fame. There'd be snickers about it when it got out, but it didn't matter. Leo would be there, with a song written and performed exactly how he wanted. Amina would be there to hear it. And she would have the answer to all of her frustrations. She would know that there was at least one other who thought as she did. Only now, when it mattered most, the words wouldn't come. The page before him remained an angry shade of unmarred white, and the sun overhead cast the shadows ever longer, like an enormous sundial counting down the hours until tomorrow night. Hating himself, Leo snatched the notebook from the table, sprang from his chair, and vaulted over the rail of his first-floor hotel room balcony. The parched, packed earth on which he landed was hard as granite so that even though he jumped a mere four or five feet, his joints felt as if they were observing the force of a great deal many more. He hurried at a half-run round the building into the parking lot where the Thunderbird sat, its chromework glinting in the sun. The engine roared into life as he jammed the key round in the ignition. A plume of dust lingered in the parking lot after he'd gone, the only trace of him that remained. The car whined as he pushed the aging pistons to their limits, taking out the anger he couldn't process on the page on the unoffending car. He drove aimlessly and for hours, trying to lose himself in the landscape. But it's impossible to lose something you never had. And Leo didn't even really know what he was running from, or whether he was running from something or running to something. He was only hoping that the indifference and peace of an alien landscape would provide the kind of neutrality in which he could sort things out. Maybe then he could find something to say. Night came. The car was running low on fuel, and so was he. Leo had no idea how far he'd driven. The odometer had broken long ago, and it hadn't seemed that important to get it fixed. A highway sign up ahead proclaimed the next town was a few miles away. Two smaller signs, really just planks of wood stuck haphazardly into the ground, announced the availability of food and fuel. He almost drove past the truck stop. It was a rickety old building with an ancient fuel pump before it. A neon sign blinked disconcertingly from a grime-streaked window. The Wayside Diner opened 24 hours. It flashed and burst in stops. The filament in the sign snapped and hissed as if it were desperately telegraphing a message in Morse code. The parking lot was abandoned. Normally this would have made Leo leery of the kind of service available within, but solitude suited his mood. He pulled his car up to the lone gas pump and gave a little toot of the horn. A man came round from the back of the hump so quickly it was as if he'd suddenly materialized there. He gave a little whistle of appreciation and bestowed a loving caress upon the bond of the Thunderbird. Ain't she a beauty, he gushed. Thanks, Leo muttered as he rolled down the window. I just need a fill-up. Can do, son, and while I'm working on that, why don't you wander on into the diner and get yourself a fill-up? The attendant snickered at his wordplay. 
You don't want me to move the car? Nah, won't be many folks coming through here tonight. I can always come get you if the need arises. The man bent down further and stuck his face against the window frame. You look as if you could use a cup of coffee. We do good coffee. Want to know the secret? Your cook know you stand out here and give away his secrets? Aw, oh, heck, he stole it off someone else. It's just a pinch of cinnamon in with the grounds. Leo bristled at the breezy familiarity of the man, whose body stopped him from opening the door and escaping. You look bent out of shape about something. Let me guess, girl trouble? You got that look about you, though I must say you're a little old for it. In that case, I also recommend a big piece of apple pie. I suppose you're going to tell me the secret to that is also cinnamon. The attendant laughed. Nah, cinnamon and nutmeg. Well, I'll get right on that, Leo snapped. The man finally took the hint. He began slowly making laps around the car, appreciatively whistling as he went. The bell on the door jingled as Leo entered the diner. He was accosted by a sudden burst of cool, stagnant air, as if in a cave, and the faint sound of music in the background. It was a soft tune, almost folk-like in tone. There was something familiar about it, something Leo couldn't quite place. Next time, on the wayside, Leo turned round in his chair, straining his back to scan the entire room. There were more people there than he would have expected, an entire sea of faces, so his name did still have some pull. He wondered how many of them were here to snicker at him. But nowhere did he see the distinctive auburn shade of Mina's hair. What if she didn't come? Leo's gut began to roil. Beads of sweat appeared as if by magic in a perfect line across his forehead. Should he pull out now, save himself the embarrassment? And then he remembered what she'd said. The Wayside is a production of Input Output Enterprises. Story and audio production by Catherine Emily.